If you haven't already, please take your Bible and turn over to the book of Exodus chapter 21, where Brian was just reading for us. If you're our guest this morning, um, I want to say thank you very much for being with us. And I think what's important for you to know is that we are working our way through the book of Exodus. I'm not sure any rational person would randomly say, I'm just going to select Exodus 21, 1 through 11 and call it my sermon text for the day. So here's what is important for us to know. One, all of Scripture is God's Word. All of it. All of Scripture is truth. All of Scripture is a gift for God's people. Sometimes the gift is just very apparent. John 3.16 for God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that he who believes should never perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes the goodness, we got to work a little bit, okay? So today we're going to work a little bit. But what God has revealed is good for God's people and brings glory to God. Now where we are in the book of Exodus is God has miraculously, powerfully delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He's freed them, and now they've come to a place where he is showing them what it looks like to be God's people. And, and this, we're in a bigger section that kind of covers Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. This Section shows us that those who've been delivered by God are transformed by God. And the Lord is showing his people what this transformed life looks like. What this passage is going to shout to us is this. That dignity and personhood and value and protection and provision are the ethics of the kingdom and are the desires of God for his people particularly as it relates to servants and masters, as it relates to work and money, as it relates to economy, and as it relates to marriage and gender. The Lord's showing his heart for how these things will be shaped by his people. Let's look at the text together, and let's see how it unfolds this for us. So point one, if you're taking notes, hearing the statutes. Hearing the statutes. So look at verse one. Now, these are the rules. Another word for rule is statute. These are the rules that you shall set before them. So, 
This is the beginning of a section starting in verse 2 and going all the way through the end of, verse, of chapter 23 known as the rules or the statutes. And so Exodus chapter 24 tells us that, that what we've seen in chapter 20, 21, 22, 23 is known as the book of the covenant or the law or the law of Moses. And inside that book of the covenant is what is known as the 10 words or the 10 commandments in chapter 20 and the statutes or the rules in chapter 21, 22, and 23. And so we can think of the statutes or the rules as God taking the truths of the Ten Commandments and applying them to the place and time of Israel as a new nation who is also the people of God moving through the wilderness. And so what we will see here is that the Lord is shaping his people. And where he needs to, he'll convict and correct and change. But he is shaping his people. So what that means for us, I believe, is at least two things. Number one, let's approach the statutes with an openness to be changed. I am not infallible. And you guys are like, amen. That's the truthiest thing you're going to say today. I know truthiest isn't a word. It just came off good. But you're not infallible either. And so let's not come to these statutes with a preconceived, I'm right, the world's wrong, and let's see how the Bible highlights my rightness. But rather, let's come to it with an openness to be convicted and changed and transformed. This is a posture of the heart. Even where you are right now, you can pray, Lord, give me such openness. Okay. The second thing I'm asking, this is going to get really present by the mere appearance of the word slave. Is let's not read our modern sensibilities into a text, but let's let the text define what it's actually talking about. Our modern sensibilities, our modern debates, our modern definitions, let's not take them and transpose them back into the text. Well, let's let the text show us what it's talking about, and then let's let the text shape our sensibilities. Let's let the text shape our sensibilities. So our method for diving into these statutes will be this. What's being taught? What does it look like in Israel at this time? And what does it look like for us in Christ? What's being taught? What does this look like for Israel at this time? And what does it look like for us who are in Christ? Because in each of these statutes, 
God is revealing his character and his heart and his desires and God's character and God's heart and God's desires are unchanging. So we're going to go looking for those. So our first statute today is a statute about slaves or servants. And I'm going to argue definitively that the better way to interpret this word is servant. So second point, if you're taking notes, what are we discussing? In verses 1 through 11 of Exodus 21, ultimately, what are we discussing? So verse 2 When you buy a Hebrew slave, that's the English translation that I have, and I guarantee you that almost every English translation also has a footnote which says, or servant. The Hebrew term abed designates a range of social and economic roles. Just pointing out, that I'm not playing fast and loose with the scripture, but even the interpreters recognize the broad meaning of the word abed. And then verse 4 says, if his master dot, dot, dot. So before us is a continuum of what this English translation calls slave and master. And so we're going to start with language. We're going to start with linguistics. And the question is, what is the meaning of these words? Because words can't mean what they've never meant. So what is the meaning of these words? And then how shall we understand them? The word for Slave, the Hebrew word for slave is used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And there's a range of meaning for it from slave, servant, maidservant, worker. So slave, servant, maidservant, worker. So this is a broad word that can be used in different ways. Everybody with me linguistically here? The word master, likewise, is used throughout the Old Testament. And that Hebrew word has a broad range of meaning, including master, owner, boss, employer. So there's a broad meaning to the word, the the two words for slave or master. So when Scripture gives us a broad meaning then context helps us understand exactly what's being talked about. So, we'll do a little walk through the Bible. In Exodus chapters 1 through 4, Israel is called a slave, same word, to 
the Egyptians. In Exodus 20, the Lord's talking about slave, same word. In the New Testament, in the book of Philemon, it talks about slave. Now that's Greek, but same concept, broad meaning one word. And then we know our own nation's history where the word slave is used. And I think it's really important for us to understand that the English word slave could be used in all four of those spaces and mean something totally different every time. So in Exodus 1 through 4, what was called slavery was based on identity. There was no way out. People were possessions, and they suffered great hardship. In Exodus 20, what's being talked about is better understood as servanthood or indentured servanthood, where it is not based on identity or on ethnicity, but it is within the Hebrew community a means of provision and work within Israel. In Philemon, we're no longer within Israel, we're under the Roman system, but the word there likewise speaks to something much more akin to indentured servanthood. And then there's antebellum America, where slavery is based on race, it is permanent, it is family separating, it is torturous at times. People are bought and sold, and it is evil. So what I'm ultimately saying is that in Exodus 20, the better way to understand the paradigm that's laid out here is not one of slave and owner, but one of servant and master. It's one of servant and master. And I'm going to tell you that there are two contextual realities that drive this point home. Number one, this is the important distinction. Verse two, when you buy a Hebrew slave slash servant, I'm just going to go with servant. When you buy a Hebrew servant, biblical scholars definitively agree that the buying and selling here If I were sold into servanthood, the recipient of the money would be me or my father's household. You guys understanding what's going on here? So the buying and selling is not that I belong to Brian and Brian sells me to John. So John pays Brian and I'm just the commodity like a loaf of bread that gets passed from one family to another. The the reality is more of a servanthood where for a price, I agree to work for someone for a period of time. Here it's six years. So, So the buying and the selling is not in possessing people. It's much more in the idea of a contractual work arrangement. Slave. 
second, it's important then for us to understand, well, but why do you need servants? Like, that in this world, there were not corporations, nor were there businesses. Provision and economy flowed through the family. All work was family work. So either I owned and possessed things that allowed me to provide, and, or I didn't. And if I did, then I ran my family business. If I didn't, then I needed to, I would find provision by being a servant for someone who did. So in many ways, this servant master reality that's being talked about here is not a form of slavery as known in antebellum America. It's certainly not a form of the modern slaveries that we know as modern sex trafficking or child trafficking. Those are evils to be condemned, but this isn't the passage to talk about those. Let me say that one more time. Those are evils to be condemned, but this is not the passage to delve into those. When we come to that, those passages, we will. This is a passage about servants and masters and maintaining dignity and humanity and joy and not falling back into what God's people had just been delivered from in Egypt. I would argue the closest thing in the scripture to the slavery of antebellum America is what Israel endured in Exodus 1 through 4. And it's as if the Lord's saying, I didn't free you from that to come over here and do that. So that you could go from the bottom of the pyramid to the top. We're going to be a different people. And I'm going to show you how. So what's being argued in this passage, what's being laid out is a system of servants and masters that is the means of provision and protection and care within the nation of Israel. Okay. So what does that mean? What does it look like? And what do we take from it? Let's look at, this is our third point. I've called the point servants, class, and gender. Now that sounds like me trying to provoke a fun ethical debate. I'm not. What I'm saying is this passage speaks to servants. It speaks to class. All I mean by class is master-servant. Those are classes, right? And it speaks to gender, male, female, because the passage speaks to it, then it's intended to shape how we think about it, okay? So let's look at the passage beginning in verse 2 with very little time to do so. What does the passage say? Verses 2 through 6 are regarding male servants. When you buy a Hebrew servant, So number one, this servanthood is not based on family 
or clan or the, uh, any idea of which nation you belong to. It's ba- this is Hebrews with Hebrews, okay? So this is not based on difference. It's, it's Hebrew with Hebrew. Number two, it's temporary. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So the person does not belong to the master forever. The person doesn't become property. The person is a servant for a fixed amount of time. And at the end of said amount of time, the servant may go free for free. There is a recognition of human dignity and human personhood and people aren't possessions to this passage. Additionally, near the end, in in verse 5, it says that if the servant says, I like it here, this is good for me, he gets to stay. He gets to choose to stay. The servant does. The servant gets to choose to stay. So we're talking about Hebrews with Hebrews. We're talking about something that's temporary, that does not turn people into possessions. And third, we're talking about something that that does not tear families apart. We might say it's pro-family. Look at verse 3. If he comes in single, he goes out single. That's simple enough. If he comes in married, then his wife goes out with him. And if he comes in single and his wife, his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, it was the master who gave them to him, but he can stay and the family can stay together. So what we see here is even in this servant-master relationship, it will be temporary, it will be dignifying, and it will not tear families apart. And if you think I'm pushing this idea of dignity too far, this like that's not there, look down at verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his servant, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his servant, male or female, he shall let the servant go free because of his tooth. What's being said here? These servants are not your possessions to destroy and dispose of as you see fit. They're people. They're brothers and they're sisters. They're fellow Hebrews. Then we come to verses 7 through 11. And this is a place where the women get their own section. 
And you might go, well, why is it different between men and women? And that's a very fair question. And what we need to understand is in society world at this time, marriage happened when a wife was sold into marriage. Um, the husband's family, the groom's family, would pay a price for the wife. And so some of you ladies are like, I don't like that. Well, let's just leave that dangling there for a minute, okay? But that was the reality. And so as with many of these statutes, rather than the Lord undoing the fallen world reality, he says, this is how I'm going dig- to add dignity and I'm going to add humanity to it. And so what's going on here is, so when a, a woman is sold, there's, there's two layers. There's the servant layer and there's the wife layer. So what's being distinguished here is the difference between servant and marriage. Servanthood lasts for six years. Marriage lasts forever. And what is laid out here is because marriage lasts forever, then the family stays together. If for some reason the marriage part of the servant marriage reality doesn't work, then the woman gets to go back home to her family. Then she, he shall let her be redeemed. That means the, trend, the, the initial selling is undone and she can go back to her family. She will not be sold to a foreign people. If he gives her to his son, he will love her and treat her as a daughter. And if for some reason the son takes another wife, he will not take away her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of Money. So what's being said? In a world where women were not protected and not able to provide for themselves, the Hebrew women will be protected and provided for. This is, I don't believe that the intent of this is to belittle women, but it is to guarantee that they are cared for. The woman will be protected within the home of the master husband with food, clothing, marital rights, or she's able to go free. Now, I know some of you ladies are like, I don't need your protection or your provision. Okay. We're not, but, but here... We're talking about a context where things, the way women lived and moved were very, very different. So, our, our ta- so, so the question then becomes, what do we take away from this? Our goal is not to say, copy, paste onto today. Let's set up a system of servants and masters and buying and selling and let's go back to 
uh, dowries and women. Like, let's, let, our goal is not to recreate this, but the question is to say, how does the heart of God as displayed in this passage shape us? And as we've said throughout the book of Exodus, it first shapes us through Christ. Remember, these people set free from slavery in Egypt, and the Lord is saying, we're not going to recreate that. If we're in Christ, we are a people who've been set free. Set free from the bondage of sin and death. And the Lord would say, don't go recreate bondage and sin and death. And so I have four therefores. Therefore, people are not property. People are created in the image of God with dignity and with humanity and with worth and with value. And we, as the children of God through faith in Christ, will celebrate that and seek to perpetuate it. Now, as we move a little further, this is where things get a little complicated for us. Servant master, what does that look like for us? Well, our minds in a lot of sermons quickly go to like, well, like employee, employer. I think that's fair. But in reality, in our capitalistic society, we all kind of ebb and flow between servant and master. And so I think we can be shaped on both sides of this. So if you go out to lunch today at a restaurant, someone is serving you. And in that instance, you're kind of in the posture of master. And then if tomorrow morning you go to work at a restaurant, well, now you're in the role of serving. So we as the children of God in America in 2021, we have to learn to to be in some ways in a server component and in a master component. So number two, if we're in a place of leadership, oversight, direction, somewhat telling people what to do or how to guide, this passage would call upon us to do that with love and humility and compassion that celebrates dignity within the congregation. Not within the congregation, within the relationship, excuse me. Notice, this is filled with incentive for a master to be a good master. Because good servants stay. So in a place where our role resembles that of master, use that position as a stewardship to love well and to serve well and to show dignity and to celebrate 
personhood and value of those who are in some ways serving you. Think about that tomorrow when Amazon comes to your door. And think about that when your air conditioning guy comes. And think about that when you go to get your car worked on. All those places were quick to complain. Leave poor tips. Be tyrannical. Third, when we're in a place to serve, recognize that our dignity is not found in what we do, but in who the Lord has made us to be. And live and move honorably with dignity. Fourth, recognize that in the ethics of the kingdom or in the desires of God, women are to be cared for protected, loved, and valued. All this language in verses 7 through 11 says, don't cast the women aside. So you know who can best make sure that women are cared for and loved and valued? The men can. Fight for that. Love for that. Now, none of these things earn our standing before God. But as those who have met Christ and have been freed from sin and death, who have been loved, who have received mercy, and who have received compassion, then let's fight for a world where these things are very present among us. Let's make them present in our lives by the power of the Spirit. Let's make them present in our families by the power of the Spirit. Let's make them present where we have any sphere of influence by the power of the Spirit, and let's make them, let's pray that they become present in a very real and tangible way around us. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, I pray you would take these words which have been spoken And you would drive them deeply into our being. Lord, if anything I have said today is untrue, unhelpful, I pray that you would cause it to not be heard and not be remembered. But as much as we've been biblical today, 
I pray that you would teach us and shape us for your glory. Help us, O oh God, we pray. In the name of Jesus.